0: This isn't all hands on deck, you know, sort of situation. This is our World War II. And that is not a dramatic comparison. The effort to win that war laid the foundation of technical progress for years to come. Mass production of antibiotics. We got skin grafts. We got mass immunizations. We got radar, the microwave oven, nuclear power, the first programmable digital computer.
1: Yo, technology. What is it all about? Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your, for the moment, more than weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I am your host, Danny Fortson, reporting to you live from my bedroom. Uh, Downstairs, my kids are literally bouncing off the walls. So if you hear any crashing, any yelling, screaming, that's them expending energy and partially destroying my house. But we digress. On the show today... We have a guest that we've had on here before. His name is Seth Bannon. He's the co-founder of 50 Years, which is a venture capital firm that focuses on sustainability, kind of environmental, et cetera, saving the planet, so to speak. And now also trying to do their part to chip in and help save humanity. So I caught up with him because I had seen something on Twitter like a month ago, almost a month ago, where he had attended a dinner with a bunch of other Silicon Valley folks as well as some disease and virus experts. Um, And this is right when COVID was just, I mean, I think it was in Washington, but it had not really taken off here. And the message that came out of that meeting, um, out of that dinner, was that basically we were all going to get it and we should brace ourselves for what was about to come. And I remember thinking at the time, well, that sounds like, a bit much. And this is before the schools were shut down. This is before we were told to shelter in place. This is before the $2 trillion bailout that was just approved in the States. Honestly, it feels like five years ago. But anyhow, I wanted to bring him on to talk about that because he's, you know, he's been, after that dinner, they had some information that perhaps the rest of us didn't quite yet. And so they started making moves. And so I want to talk to him about his perspective as a venture capitalist. how this is unfolding in startup land and also to talk about what's happening specifically around COVID-19 and the response about a dozen of his companies in some shape or form are working on the pandemic and of course they're startups right they're not in the hospital front lines but there are some encouraging signs here and there which I think we all kind of need right now so so that's it. So I will stop talking and hand you over to Seth Bannon, the co-founder of 50 Years uh, Venture Capital Firm uh, in San Francisco. We, of course, did this
0: by Zoom. Enjoy. How's it going? <laughs> it's been uh, a little rough. Yeah, la- last couple of weeks have been uh, probably the most intense of 50 years. It's been a combination of, you know, having conversations with a lot of our portfolio founders about how to prepare for a capital scarce environment, Yeah, which of course involves a lot of really hard conversations around burn. And, and you know, those are the, the hardest, I think, conversations to have because when you're a founder, the, the most difficult choice that you ever are faced with is when your employees are performing exactly like you asked them to, right? but still potentially having to let them go because of some macro condition that was completely outside of their control. So that's been intense and stressful. But on the other side of things, you know, we have twelve now portfolio companies that are directly addressing COVID nineteen in some way, shape or form. And you know, we've been hustling to help them build and launch and scale their solutions. And that's been both a lot of work, but you know, obviously pretty inspiring. A lot of sixteen hour work days, but I would say generally some combination of exhaust, exhausting and, and inspiring.
1: So there's a couple of one, things I wanted to cover off because I mean one of the things that um, a lot of people are worried about, obviously, is jobs, job security. What does this all mean for everybody? So how dramatic is this for the startups? What are you seeing? Is it just basically everybody's having to cut staff and kind of really batten down the hatches? And we don't see the horizon yet, doesn't feel like. This feels like a systemic shock that really no one could prepare for. And just trying to take the temperature of like, you know, as a venture capitalist, how are you looking at this.
0: No, it's going to be it's going to be incredibly rough for startups, and it's rough because of two reasons. So one, because there's so much market volatility, you know, funding in part dries up, and you know, you'll see a lot of VCs say on Twitter, "We're open for business." You know, we're making investment. Yeah. Are they open for business? Are we open for business? Absolutely. You know, are we talking to new entrepreneurs? Yes. Uh, do we plan on making new investments? Of course. But you know, are we prioritizing helping our existing portfolio founders navigate these volatile waters? You better believe it. And what that means is that you know, if you're a VC fund and you put your founders first, even in normal times, you might have the odd week where 70% of your time is spent on portfolio support. These last couple of weeks, that number is more like 90%. And so what that means is that you know, all these VCs have less capacity for, for new conversations. I think that's true of just about every good VC fund, um, which means it's going to be really hard to raise new capital. For anybody, I, I imagine. For anybody on top of the sort of portfolio support, a lot of VCs are worrying about their own sources of capital, right? Um, the LP side of things, LPs being investors in VC funds. We actually had our first close for our fund three this week. <laughs> you know, let me tell you, that's taking more time and attention than it would in good times. And, you know, we're, we're lucky that we have a, a pretty good track record of performance. And so our raise was on, on path to being the easiest one we've had, but it's going to take longer. You know, we've actually had... Um, you know, two of our LPs asked to delay their commitments to our new fund because they're taking a hit in the public markets. And that does slow us down. We're actually really fortunate that we're not seeing this particular problem, but some VC funds are sending out what are called capital calls to their LPs. That's when they ask their LPs to send money that they've already committed. And some of the, those LPs are not able to meet their capital calls, right? That can kill a fund. That means the fund is stopped in its tracks. It means that fund might not even be able to support its existing portfolio companies.
1: So, could we could we just stop and talk about that? Because I think that's really that's a really interesting thing that most people don't really understand that structure. So, could you just explain broadly, kind of, you know, okay, I'm Vcx, I've raised a billion dollar new fund, yay. What does that actually mean, and and how do those dynamics work when all of a sudden, you know, the world is turned upside down and people maybe haven't given over the money that they have committed to in principle.
0: Yeah, so VC funds work very differently than startups. So when a startup says, we just raised $10 million, it means that they have $10 million sitting in their bank, which is great for a crisis like this. When a VC fund says, we've just raised a billion dollars for our new fund, what they really mean is that a collection of LPs, these are limited partners, investors in VC funds, have committed to, over the next several years, sending that fund you know, a billion dollars to invest in startups. Kind of dribbling it out over over time. And VCs basically only ask for that money when they have an investment that they want to make, either in a new company or in an existing company. And when they're ready to make that investment, they send out what's called a capital call. This is basically going to those LPs and saying, hey, you know, uh, endowment, you said that you'd commit this amount of money. Well, we're about to make a new investment. Can you please send us your part of that new investment? And th- they might be sending out that request to If it's a really tiny fund, maybe 15 LPs. If it's a large fund, maybe 100 LPs. And then those LPs will wire that money, and then the VC will be able to wire that money into the startup. But what happens is when there's extreme market volatility, and, and of course, this is some of the most extreme that we've seen, some of those LPs might be having a capital pinch themselves. Their own liquid net worth might have just decreased by 35% because they might have been entirely in the public markets. And now, if they're an endowment or... A foundation or a pension fund or a sovereign wealth fund, you know, they, they might have the cash. It doesn't mean they're not a little bit less enthusiastic to send it. But if they're an individual, if they're a corporation, they might all of a sudden be looking at their bank account and saying, oh my God, how am I going to fund these commitments? And so especially some smaller funds are feeling a lot of pressure to slow down their deployments. And what that means is that one of their startups that is doing well, that needs more capital, they might not be able to as easily fund that, that company because they're feeling pressures from their LPs to slow down. One side of the capital crunch for startups. The other big side is on the revenue side. Um, you know, I have talked to entrepreneurs where 80% of their monthly revenue has disappeared. These are companies, some of whom had great businesses. I talked to one company that had just gotten to profitability, the promised land of startups. This was an incredibly healthy business, but because of the sector that they sold into, um, in this case, it's gyms. Those gyms are shut down. They're not spending anything now. Now that that startup, which might have been expecting to have a two-year runway, might all of a sudden have a four-month runway, and they have a four-month runway in a time when VCs are hesitant to spend money. So a lot of otherwise incredibly healthy businesses are going to be put at great risk because of this, and never mind businesses that were, were already struggling. So I think we're going to see... A huge shock to the startup ecosystem. We're already starting to see a lot of companies let people go because they need to reduce their burn. But I think we're we're probably just at the beginning days of that happening. Wow, wow. I mean,
1: obviously, in the grand scheme of things, these are kind of first world problems. But it is—it's quite illustrative of the kind of the broader shocks of all of this. It just feels like nothing, everything is going to be
0: touched and is being touched by by the pandemic. Yeah, I I think nothing's protected here because it's not like you know, in two thousand eight the last crisis we saw, it was because of some sort of sickness in the, in the financial markets, right? And, and, you know, you could find that sickness, you could address that sickness, you could move on. This is both a, a demand shock and a, a supply shock. What that means is that the supply shock comes because many people's supply chains have been disrupted because the factories in China where they were that they were sending their widgets have been shut down. And at the same time, it's the demand shock where some of their customers are either going out of business or, or spending less money. And we don't know when it's going to end, because at the end of the day, this isn't a financial sickness. This is a biological problem, right? There's a virus out there, and we've got to stop it before things get back to normal.
1: And can we just take a step back? So I, because obviously we did our pod, what, it was a couple months ago now, back when the world was what we, we knew it as it was then. <laughs> um, and I saw on Twitter, that it must have been a few weeks back, before things really hit here, you were at a dinner, I think, with Steve Jurvetson and a few other folks, and it sounded like you guys, there was somebody there from public health who really kind of gave you a heads up about what was to come. Is that right?
0: Yeah, so it was a dinner organized by Steve Jurvetson and, and Mariana, future Ventures, and it was with uh, Bernard Kosla, and, and more interestingly, these two academics, David Baker, who runs the Institute for Protein Design at the University of Washington, um, and Neil King, who is actually one of the world's leaders in vaccines, and specifically vaccines that cover many different strains of of a potential uh, infection. Right. And so this was very early on before people knew the scale of this. And and they said, you know, with very high degree of certainty, 30 to 70 percent of people are going to get, you know, COVID-19 this season. And, you know, they were quite sure that over the next two to three years, it was going to be 100 percent of the population. And so that was it. That was a huge, you know, wake up call for us at that moment. I still think that somehow, you know, regulators have not come around to that conclusion in some parts of the world. But you know, this is this is an all hands-on-deck, you know, sort of situation. This is our World War II. And that is not a dramatic comparison. You know, the scale of the threat is actually similar. If you look at middle-of-the-road epidemiological models, they put the death toll of COVID-19 in the tens of millions, if nothing, is done. When I realized that the scale of the problem is that large? Of course, it fills me with a little bit of dread, but also a lot of optimism because during World War II, the technology community, the capital community rallied like never before to win that cause, and I'm hopeful that we can do the same now.
1: On that note, I see that because a lot of you, as previously discussed uh, on the pod we did a couple months ago, a lot of your companies are in the kind of biotech or kind of physical world in one way or another and um one of the companies or it seems several of the comp- of your portfolio companies are working on some aspect of testing and i don't know if either at that dinner or your experience over the last few weeks has given you a sense of what is happening there because it's it's for la- last week on the pod we had dr yunatis from stanford university of the epidemiologist and he was talking about how vital testing was and it just it's kind of extraordinary that it, things are taking so long here um, and i know that a couple of your companies are working on that do you have any sense of you know talking with these companies and being kind of in the trenches on this what is happening there and w- what the delay is and whether the cavalry is coming because that seems quite crucial
0: yeah so if you look at the two countries that are more open democratic systems that have combated this, this with any level of success. South Korea is the one that really looks the most like America. And then the other, of course, less democratic is, is Singapore. If you look at how those two countries have gotten us under control, it is through testing, 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 aggressively testing, testing to see who has the infection so that you can quickly get those people into quarantine, testing to see who might have the infection through things like forehead thermometers, Those people can immediately self-isolate and testing to see who has had the virus and has now overcome it because these people are now immune. In the United States, we are largely flying blind. No one can really tell you right now how many people have this infection because we have not scaled up our testing effort. And it's just been, I mean, there's no other way of putting it, an incredible failure of the federal government. We were actually offered some tests uh, very early on from the World Health Organization and turned them down because our current administration just didn't think that that was a big need. You know, of course, when you remember our president on television saying, we've got 15 cases and it's heading towards zero, totally missed the the ball here. And so that's horrifying. But is the Calvary coming? Yes. And it has largely been the academic community and the private sector that have realized this need and rallied to scale up testing. I mentioned University of, of Washington earlier. They have the University of Washington Viro- virology department has quickly scaled up their testing in Washington, and a lot of both startups and larger companies have scaled up testing nationally. It finally feels like we are we're getting to where we need to be. We're almost at a per capita testing rate um, to where South Korea was at a, at a uh, same time in the in their crisis, and so that finally feels like it's 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 getting solved.
2: That's stamps.com. Code program.
1: So one of the questions I had is, I think one of your um, companies is, is Nurks, and I know that they announced a home testing kit along with a few others, startups and health providers last week. And then the FDA came out and basically smacked them down without naming the companies in particular, but just saying, look, there's a lot of tests coming on the market that are not approved you should be very wary of this, American consumers. And there's obviously a lot of tension between quality control and trying to keep things scientifically sound and, and controlled and also the urgency of the situation.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I wish they were a little bit more nuanced in their announcement because there's a few different types of at-home testing. One is we're going to send you a kit to your home and then you're going to do something with that kit and at home you're going to get the results. And many of those... Do have questionable accuracy and and have not been vetted by the FDA, and then there's a second uh, category, and this is the category that Nurx falls into, where they send you a kit, you collect your saliva, and then you and then that is sent back to a CLIA approved lab. Uh, CLIA is the Clinical Laboratories Improvement Amendments, federally regulated type of lab, and these type of companies are are doing everything by the book, and I think it's really a really really important thing to focus on because there are a lot of people, frankly, that live in healthcare deserts that uh, don't have the ability to go into a primary care physician. They live in places that are never going to have a drive-through testing clinic. And we need to know if there are outbreaks from an epidemiological point of view in those areas. And those people need to know if they are infected or not so they can choose to stay home or if they're in an at-risk population get care. And so I think the second category of at-home testing companies are, are, are pursuing something that's incredibly important.
1: And so on that, I've been listening to, I'm sure as everybody else has, lots of podcasts, reading lots of stuff about this. My understanding is that the tests, at least the ones that I've heard about, I mean, basically you have to take a swab that like, you know, deep in the recesses of your nose, it feels like you're stabbing your brain is the way I heard it described. I mean, if asking people to do that at home, you know, most people aren't, I would guess, aren't going to do it right.
0: I think it's a it's it's a, a risk with any sort of at home medical care. I think that if you have a pretty robust sort of telemedicine presence with that where they can actually consult with a, a, a caregiver if need be um, to ask any questions, I think it's still better than no testing at all because the alternative is they can't go into a hospital to get tested. They they can't they can't know whatsoever. And so I, I do think that um obviously uh it's not ideal but it's it's far far better than the
1: alternative and then i guess the other thing going back to kind of where we started on the on on the kind of the fallout from this there's a few different ways you can look at it you can say well okay this is going to lead to a ton of innovation and startups and new things happening because you know necessity is the mother of invention and um these are obviously uh, extraordinary times but in terms of the the crunch Just the implosion of a lot of companies. I mean, in terms of what we have seen before, is there a precedent, just in terms of that, of just the kind of the destruction of startups and smaller companies that is
0: coming? I think it's fairly unprecedented. The 2000 tech bubble bursting is a somewhat good analogy in terms of the number of companies that might uh, have to go under or, or perform mass layoffs, but. That, again, was caused by an inflation in the market. It was caused by uh, irrational investors and and entrepreneurs chasing crazy valuations and spending uh, money in a way that they clearly shouldn't. And so, in in a way, it was a lot of businesses that didn't have sound fundamentals coming crashing down. Uh, In the 2008 financial crisis, again, it was caused by the same thing. It was caused by a lot of really unhealthy financial institutions becoming sick because of that and and then bringing some other companies down with them. But this is something where, again, perfectly healthy businesses, even that have, might have really positive unit economics, that might have really great growth rates, that might not be overleveraged, are going to suffer because there might be months of lost revenue and a capital market that's dried up. So I actually, when I look back, don't really see too many analogies in the, in the modern age in terms of the financial destruction that might be coming. But I do think it's also important to focus on, you know, the positive that might come of this. You know, if we, again, if we go back to the World War II analogy, what came out of that? We, we got mass production of antibiotics. We got skin grafts. We got mass immunizations. We got radar, the microwave oven, nuclear power, the first programmable digital computer. The effort to win that war laid the foundation of technical progress for years to come. And I think that something might happen now, you know, what company is going to bring the development of vaccines down from years to months in this crisis? What scientist is going to figure out how to develop new assays for new viruses in days instead of months? Um, I think that there's an opportunity here to build infrastructure that you know makes us stronger uh, as, as a world and also more resilient over the decades to come.
1: And have you... Um and this is just as a, an aside, I know that the idea of universal basic income has been hotly debated, at least th- throughout Silicon Valley for the last few years, that is in a form kind of emergency universal basic income is what the government is now contemplating. Do you see anything coming out of that just in terms of the innovations or the other p- venture capitalists you're talking to who are looking at it's kind of getting involved in that some way or some businesses around that?
0: I think, you know, this is clearly going to be a, a sort of test of that, you know, be it a very short term test. And it's, it's it's quite interesting how many politicians that derided that as just insane, you know, sending cash directly to people are now saying, yeah, of course, we need to do that to get this economy going. So I think this might inch us closer to being able to have more mainstream conversations around universal basic income. But uh, in terms of what people in the entrepreneurial community and VC community talking about, it's it's almost entirely around technology solutions. Things like these payments to individuals, things like the lockdowns or social distancing, those are like short-term Band-Aids. You know, if a bear is chasing you, you know, climbing up a tree, you can't stay up that tree forever. The only way to really solve this problem and move past this virus is with, you know, vaccines and therapeutics and mass testing and infection tracking, you know, I think this pandemic requires technological solutions, not necessarily those types of interventions.
1: Yeah, otherwise we're just going to be up on the tree forever.
0: I'll just say that I have been uh, very inspired with the response of the entrepreneurial community. From things as simple as helping flatten the curve by making it easy for people to work from home, through redirecting manufacturing capacity towards you know personal protective equipment, to offering infrastructure that allows scientists to better collaborate, Two, of course you know building vaccines and therapeutics that will eventually defeat this virus once and for all. It, it feels like everyone has been chipping in, um, scientists, entrepreneurs, uh, even even investors. You know I think it's really important that everyone does. Yesterday we actually did something that we never would have imagined doing. We went to all twelve of our portfolios that are working on this crisis directly and offer them all an uncapped note to accelerate their efforts.
1: What do you mean an uncapped note? like a blank check?
0: Uncapped note is essentially money that converts to equity at the terms of the startup's next equity raise. It is considered the most founder-friendly financing instrument there is. And it's therefore, and this is why we did it, something that founders can say yes to and start putting to work immediately. Investors typically don't like them because the risk-reward profile isn't so great because you're taking all the risk now, but you're only getting the quote unquote price of something that might happen in the future but again this is a i think once in a generation challenge and i think everyone needs to play their part in finding solutions
1: well i wish you luck uh for for all of our sakes and let's uh definitely keep in touch as as things progress it's um i'm sure there's going to be more unbelievable things happening kind of on a daily or weekly basis stay safe and stay stay sane likewise (laughs) stay here denny thanks cheers And that is all the time we have. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. We'll have another pod toward the end of the week. And to just give you a little hint, it's with a Nobel Prize winner. The first for us, which is cool, to talk about um, what's happening in the world and to give some perspective. Keep an eye out for that. And in the meantime, stay safe, everybody. Stay at home. And, you know figure out how to try to do some exercise, even if you're just doing some jumping jacks or something. Anyhow, we will talk very soon. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.